0: Name two patients gave you hell in these 35 years, and he said people who had history of periodontitis before having implants are going to get, or are at high risk of getting peri-implantitis after having an implant. So they will always be at higher risk, and people who have parafunctional habits will always going to grind and break these implants for you. Welcome to the Protrusive Dental Podcast, the forward-thinking podcast for dental professionals. Join us as we discuss hot topics in dentistry, clinical tips, continuing education, and adding value to your life and career. With your host, Jazz Gulati.
1: Hello to the Protruserati. Welcome to episode fifty-two of the Protrusive Dental Podcast. This is the part two of the implant series with Dr. Hassan Magheri. I hope you enjoyed that part one, where we think about when you're actually getting into implants, when you're thinking about starting your implant journey. Is it right for you? So that was the last episode. In this episode, we're getting a little bit more clinical. We're assessing like what's suitable for your first case. How do you assess the space, the mouth? the patient that might be suitable for implants. What are the patients to avoid? What about smoking? What about peri-implantitis? What about bisphosphonates? So you really look into the nitty gritty clinical details about selecting patients that are suitable for implants, particularly if you're starting out In in fact, I had to listen to this episode again, because so many gems in there about the timing of extraction. Sometimes I wonder, should I be the one extracting this tooth? Or should the person who's placing the implants be extracting it? So we we cover that as well. As well as something I I do a lot, which is sectioning molars, I'm a big fan of sectioning and elevating molars. And I asked Hassan, Dr. Hassan, what he thought about that? Is it right that I'm routinely doing this? Is that a good thing? Or can we run into trouble? So lots and lots covered this very clinical episode with Dr. Hassan Magara. This episode is sponsored by Enlightened Smiles and Mini Smile Makeover. So I want to share a great pearl that again I get from Dipesh Palmer from the MSM course which I went on over a year ago. It's one of the best composite courses or courses at all I've ever done. The, the setup was great, the hands-on was awesome. The food is always on point thanks to Payman Man Langroody, that man. Uh, so the, the pearl I want to share with you is about line angles, right? So when we're placing our restorations, let's say composite restorations direct and we're wanting to create those perfect line angles anteriorly. How do we do it? Well, you might have seen the trick where we can use a pencil to draw the line angles. I'm going to show you two different ways to apply the pencil and because i'm in the studio and not the practice i don't have a pencil so instead of a pencil i'll be using in this video an eyeliner it's my wife's eyeliner the funny thing is i don't even know if this is eyeliner or not i'm just assuming it is so maybe the ladies can correct me but i think this is eyeliner it's, it's maybelline maybe it's maybelline anyway i'm getting distracted um she'll never know because she doesn't listen to the podcast anyway so I'm going to use it in two different ways. So if you're watching the podcast and great, you're going to get to see it. If you're listening, I can describe it in a way that's useful. If you want to draw where your line angles want to be. So if you want to draw where you would like for the line angles to be, you should draw it with the tip of the pencil, like you'd normally use a pencil, right? So you draw it in, you know, left and right exactly mesial distal exactly where you would like the line angles. So then you can use your soft flex disc or buzz or whatever you like to use to, to recreate exactly what you've drawn right now. If you want to see or assess where the line angles currently are, so you know whether to push them in or bring them out. It's a different way of doing it. So you have to hold the pencil or the eyeliner in my case uh, on its side and if you hold it on its side and you just brush against the tooth, the height of contour of the tooth i.e. the part of the tooth that sticks out the most which is the line angle will pick up the, the pencil. So if you want to assess where the line angle currently is, you use the pencil on its side. If you want to draw where you'd like your line angle to be, you use it normally. Uh, So that's a little tip on how to use the pencil. Now, uh, how can we use it clinically in the best way? Obviously, you won't be using my wife's eyeliner clinically, you the best bet you have clinically is using those um, clicky lead pencils. So click, click, click. Because the beautiful thing about that is once you've used it and spin the patient's mouth, you just break away uh, the lead and then you uh, click, click, click. And you know, there's no contamination there. Uh, And of course, you can use one of those uh, light cure covers plastic sleeves when you're using it. So this is like the most uh, infection control friendly way of using it. So I hope you found that whole useful. Uh, and thank you again to MSM uh, Mini Smart Mokova for sponsoring this uh, podcast episode. Uh, now right over to Dr. Hassan Magera on a very clinical episode part two of the implant series. This is all about assessing your patients for implants. We we'll even go all the way in depth from, from you know from the start we start basic all the way to talking about ridge preservation. So uh, follow along and I'll catch you in the outro. Okay, Hassan Magera, welcome back to this part two that we're we're doing on implants. The theme is implants. The first episode we talked about where you introduced yourself as well. We talked about uh, the implant journey, getting into implants, some challenges, uh, the role of mentorship and continual development. Uh, And this one, we want to make a little bit more clinical because you mentioned something fantastic in that uh, first part whereby if you're a general dentist and you don't provide implants, we still need to give our patients the option of an implant. And then if a patient turns around to us and says, am I suitable? What's involved? Uh, Is it simple? Is it straightforward? We need to have some background knowledge. Um, So I'm hoping this episode will just scratch the surface uh, about that topic. So um, Hassan, the question I want to ask is, how do you know that the patient in front of you, the mouth in front of you, or the space in front of you Is correct for an implant versus a different approach? How
0: do you even begin thinking about this massive topic? Okay, Um, the first thing you need to remember that when you look at a space, you need to be looking at at like a bigger picture. Rather than look at space, look at mouth. Rather than look at mouth, look at the patient. Okay, and as the patient comes to you asking for an implant, try to look at that patient as series of risks and start to tick box. Do they have that risk? Do they have that risk? Do they have that risk? And if they don't have all these risks, then you could say, right, it's safe now to proceed to dental implant therapy. To keep it simple, the only absolute contraindication for implant dentistry is as simple as uncontrolled medical or dental disease. Everything else is suitable. So. You've got a diabetic patient. Is their diabetes con- well controlled? Perfect, no problem. Is their diabetes uncontrolled? Then we cannot go ahead with implant dentistry. You've got someone with perio. Is their perio well controlled? Yes, then we can go ahead with implant dentistry. Their perio is not well controlled. Let's stabilize the perio and then talk about implant dentistry. Now, there are some medications which can complicate the implant work. And the most popular ones are obviously best phosphonates. And I highly recommend looking at a document by the ADI called the white paper. And it's basically, it's a consensus document done um, or a review document done by one of the professors uh, invited by the ADI. And it summarizes the guidelines. When is it safe to go ahead, um, for implant dentistry for someone in bisphosphonates or all the uh, group of that medication and when is it isn't safe. To summarize that document, basically anyone on intravenous bisphosphonates is a high risk. And that's to do with the fact that people who take intravenous bisphosphonates, they take it in high dose. So that's one thing to remember. Anyone taking oral tablets for long, long time, which means more than three years, that also become medium risk. Now, oral bisphosphonates less than three years, can be a minimum risk, but the risk is there. And you need to be talking to your patient about the exact risks involved in having um, implant dentistry while being on these medications. Another good thing to do with people on bisphosphonates or similar medications, is basically to go for a staged approach. So try to, you've got a patient needing three teeth out, take single tooth out and see how things are going to heal. And then if that heals well, you could move to the second tooth and so on. And then if things heal well after teeth extraction, you could say, right, then maybe implant history can be safer. There will be some pre-operative and postoperative antibiotics needed, and you need to have a minimum um, traumatic surgery. So I would highly recommend go and check that white paper by the ADI and I think it's available for everyone. I, yeah,
1: yeah, I, will, I will add that on the, the show notes on the website, Protrusive website and on the Facebook group as well. So that's a really good point. And it's, it's just good knowledge to have about bisphosphonates when it comes to, you know, surgery, extractions and implants is no exception. So if when your patient, your little old Mrs. Smith comes and she uh, wants to have some implants uh, to restore her sort of uh, ability to chew something. And she's been on implants, maybe oral um, implants for, for seven years. Uh, you can think, okay, about the white paper. And then that'll help to inform you uh, what the next step is. Should you refer, should you place whatever you need to do. So that's a good point And I'll make that available.
0: So you yeah, you talked about... about yeah. yeah. Sorry, the thing is about oral best phosphonates that Nowadays, you know, GPs prescribe it regularly. And Mm -hmm. some GPs wanting to make it easier for their patients, rather than taking a tablet once a day, they start offering to give injection to their um, patients like twice a year or whenever. So they move them from a low risk to high risk, although their medical history hasn't changed. So don't assume that, oh, she's only osteoporotic, Surely she's not on injections. Some of these patients are on injections and you have to be double-checking that.
1: That's a good point because I just assumed if they're osteoporosis, there'd be an oral and it's the more the, the cancer risk or whatever that would be taking the, the infusions or very severe. So yeah, it's a good point to double-check your medical history.
0: So basically, going back to the very first point, unstable dental, unstable medical diseases are these people want to keep away from. Now, as you go into implant dentistry further down, further deeper, uh, you need to start to think about, okay, what are the things which can complicate the future treatment? And I remember was attending a lecture by uh, someone who had 35 years experience in implant dentistry. And it was a beautiful lecture. At the end of the lecture, the moderator asked him and said, name two patients gave you hell." in these 35 years. And he said, people who had history of periodontitis before having implants are going to get, or are at high risk of getting peri-implantitis after having an implant. So they will always be at higher risk. And people who have parafunctional habits will always going to grind and break these implants for you. And I've watched your episode about stents And it's really amazing. And I think this is something else every dentist needs to know about. Because if you're going to offer implant dentistry to a patient, like it or not, they become your implants and you become somehow responsible for this long-term success of these restorations. And this is where communication is very important at the very beginning. Because like it or not, even in the United Kingdom, you will have patients thinking that the fact they're paying you 3,000, 4,000 pounds per implant, that that's it, it's gonna be there forever. And they will forget the fact that they bought a car for 20,000 pounds and that car Mm -hmm. is not forever. So Mm -hmm. I think that sort of um, education needs to be there in the assessment visits to our patients that, you know, yes, you're having an implant, but there will be lots of maintenance and review visits needed afterwards.
1: Just a flash question, Hassan, when a patient asks you how long will my implant last, what do you say?
0: Well, that's a very good question because obviously dentists are under pressure to say, my implant will last you for life, don't worry. But actually you're worried because if you go to the patient and say, I cannot guarantee the implant, you you worry that this patient might go somewhere else. So. The best way to do it is to go and say, and this is why I say, evidence-based studies, so basically it's not my theory, it's proper research, suggests that if implants are looked after really well, we can have a survival rate of 95% up to 15 years, maybe longer. Having said that, the same studies suggest that If you fail to keep the implants clean and if you get gum disease around your teeth and your implant, your implant going to fail within the first couple of years. So basically, I'm making it clear that we will do everything to make sure you get that long-term survival. However, it's a two-way equation. I need your help and your support to look after by two brackets, your implant. And I think patients need to understand that. It's their problem. They came to us with a failing tooth. They came to us with a missing tooth. And we're doing our part. And I genuinely believe every dentist is gonna be an honest dentist, trying their best to help their patient. But the patient needs to understand, needs to understand that they have a role in this long-term success should they want it to be there. That?
1: That's a really great point. And uh, it's the same thing I talk about power function splints, you know, the, the reason I color in my splints and then they, they grind it and then they'd see the markings is that so they can begin to own the problem because quite often they they, they have no idea that it's there. And then when they see and they, then they own the problem. So just like that, they need to own their implant and own the problems that could happen with their implants because it's in their mouth and they need to uphold the basic level of uh, care and maintenance as well. So I'm sure that's uh, drilled into them, excuse the pun, in terms from the beginning and that's part of the consent process.
0: 100% and that's the other thing you know, you know in in the consent process you talk to them talk to them about preoperative assessment and then you talk to them about what we're going to do during the surgical and the restorative stages. But then the third part, which is as important, is what's going to happen after completing the work. And this is again where we're talking about general dental practitioner. You know, every dentist should have the absolute minimum knowledge on how to maintain a dental implant, at least how to diagnose perimplantitis, how to diagnose continuous bone loss around the dental implant, and when to refer that patient back to their dentist. I had I had one of my lovely referring dentists, bless her. She referred me a central incisor case. I've done the case. Everything went perfect. And then the de- the, for one reason or another, the patient grinding his teeth at night, the screw went loose. So the dent- patient went to see his dentist, and then dentist said, oh, don't worry about it. We'll wait for it until it comes out. She didn't know that you biting on it A tiny loose screw is going to break that screw. And then that case was sort of converted from a simple case where you tighten the screw in three minutes to a very complicated case where we had to put the patient through one hour of screw removal, which was very stressful for the patient and for us as well. So these little things, I mean, this is an invitation to every single dentist to go and look for these open evenings, continual education conferences, they need to know about implant dentistry. And I think that's something you and I covered in part one.
1: Are you enjoying the Protrusive Dental podcast? Well, allow me to deliver you even more value. You can now download the iOS or Play Store app for free. Just search Protrusive on your app platform. Now, if you're a true protruserati and you want to support the podcast, you want to claim CPD for all the listening and watching that you do, you want to get access to exclusive clinical walkthrough videos to make dentistry tangible, as well as a premium newsletter, access to the Protrusive Vault and the ability to download all the clinical videos and podcast videos so you can view them offline later. You can get all of that for less than 15 tax deductible dollars per month. So what are you waiting for? Download the Protrusive app now on iOS or Android for absolutely nothing. We worked so hard on this Protrusive team and I know you're just gonna love it. Now back to the main episode. Absolutely. And I think you've raised a great point. If you're a general dentist, and you know we've all seen it, the patient that comes in and their implants of swiveling around. Uh, and if you don't know anything about that, you think, oh, my God, what's happening? Is the implant loose? You know, If you're newly qualified, I think, oh, my God, what, what's happening? I need to call someone. This is this looks really serious. But it's just as simple of just removing the uh, implant uh, restoration, the composite that's on top, uh, removing the PTFE or cotton, or whatever they've placed there, and just giving a little tighten, quarter turn, or whatever, uh, and then putting the restoration back. And the patient's so happy, and you've avoided this uh, this complications. So it's about that. Just like you said, getting that level one, level two knowledge, which is, which is so key. And we don't get that. Well, I certainly didn't get that in my undergraduate to the extent that I would be confident to deal with that situation unless I hadn't sort of pursued extra courses and, and, and knowledge to do that and, or, and mentorship and guidance. Um, has that? Tell me about smokers because that's a huge one, right? If my patient smokes and I need to, let's say, refer them to my um, our in-house um, dentist who places implants, is there any point where an implant dentist will say, no, I definitely will not. Is there a, like a, a minimum number in the evidence that says that if you smoke above this point, there's no implant for you. If you smoke between here and here, all right, we might do it, if everything else is in our favor. Do we have a magic number?
0: Yes. Well, I mean, we have very good research from Professor Bain, and, uh, who's basically... He's a British professor based in Scotland, and he's done amazing research on smokers and implants in the uh, mid-80s, early 90s. And at the time, it showed that smokers will have higher risk of implant failures. Okay, But then most of that research was done on machined implants, on the polished implants, which, let's say, the old-style implants. Now, more research was done by Professor Bain and his group and other, you know, research in the literature. When we have the modern implant surfaces, which are implant surfaces treated differently to encourage better osseointegration, it showed that actually smoking will not really influence osseointegration as we felt before. Having said that, we do have good research showing that, let's say, if we're talking about survival in implant dentistry, 97%, as a smoker, it goes to mid 80s. So there is a risk. And that's to do with the fact that we know when you smoke, you're going to affect the oxygenation to the little, papil- little capillaries supplying blood supply to the bone and the surrounding bone. When you smoke, you're going to get high risk of wound dehiscence. When you smoke, that normal flora inside your mouth is going to be converted into very aggressive bacteria. So that balance inside your mouth is not going to be right anymore. So you're always at higher risk of having complications. Now, if you are a smoker and you have a period disease, that's when you get like synergetic negative effect. And that's when things start to even cause more damage. Now, to summarize, when it comes to implant dentistry, some research suggests that if you smoke 10 or less, you're classified as light smoker, and that will not have as negative effect if you're a heavier smoker, 20, 15 cigarettes a day or not. That's rule number one. So I go to smokers and I tell them, do you know what? I know you will never stop smoking, despite whatever I say. At least cut down to less than 10. Having said that, there are very good articles and studies showing stopping smoking for about 60 days or so will bring you back as a healthy person when it comes to blood oxygenation and good healing abilities. So there were some random control trials done on rats and they found that these rats who smoke, they have very low bone density, very low ability of healing. But then when they make them stop smoking, um, within 60 days, they come back to as healthy as the control group. So stopping smoking does make a huge difference. Hassan, Room I'm so sorry, I couldn't, I,
1: couldn't, I couldn't keep a straight face <laughs> there. I've just got this image of this rat holding the cigarette.
0: And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I, have, I have the image of the Big Bang Theory. What was her <laughs> name? Yeah, uh, Sheldon. Name? Amy. Sheldon's girlfriend, Amy. Okay, I forgot the name of the girl, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, She, she's one who does like studies on monkeys, if you remember, and giving them okay. smoke. So yeah, <laughs> I had that picture. So rule number three, we talked about, you know, smoking less than 10 is better than heavy smoking. Mm-hmm. Rule number two was we talked about stopping smoking makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. And first, all that negative effect. And uh, n- rule number three Smoking itself can work with implant dentistry, but I go to the patient and say, don't come and ask me why I have no papilla or why I have recession after my surgery. So don't expect to get cosmetic implant dentistry or aesthetic soft tissue contour if you're a smoker. And rule number four, if you need bone grafting or sinus grafting, it's an absolute contraindication in my book because this is where things start to be more complicated. I will now, with confidence, say I will never do sinus graft for a smoker. I will um, hesitate 100 times before I do bone blocker grafting for a smoker. Because anything needs advanced surgery, needs a huge amount of blood supply. Smokers will just won't work for them.
1: Brilliant. That's a nice little summary. So less than 10, 60 days uh, you mentioned uh, and and really to avoid it in, in patients who might need advanced work and uh, and to tell the patients that not to expect a cosmetic benefit from the soft tissues. That's a really nice, uh, I've certainly uh, gained from that myself. So when I'm seeing uh, smokers now, I have a bit more confidence to speak about them and and be make sure that my referrals to my implant dentist are more appropriate. Of course, I'll send them to my implant dentist anyway to have that chat, but I can have that little bit of um confidence in myself that you know we're on the same page there. So that's grand. Uh, and the last thing I want to talk about clinically, because really there's so much we could talk about, and I want to make it um most valued for those listening, mostly GDPs. When you have a patient who has an unrestorable molar, let's say, and it may or may not have apical infection, how do you decide between, hey, should I send it to my, if they're asymptomatic, should I send it to my implant dentist to assess? before the extraction? Or should I extract the tooth, then send it? Or um, can, I, uh, can you predict whether something will be an immediate placement? Or will the implant dentist wait a bit? How do you even
0: begin to uh, come to those sorts of decisions? Okay, obviously, I mean, different implant dentists will like to work differently, okay? But I think the most important advice here, try to communicate with your implant Uh, dentist. Um, uh, Personally, I prefer to see them before having the tooth out, because as an implant dentist, one of the things which will help us to predict the long-term survival of this case and to decide how to manage this case is to look at the tooth before it's been out and know why that specific person needing to lose that tooth. Was it due to perio or was it due to infection or just unrestorable cracked tooth? So that Mm -hmm. made a huge um, change in the workflow and on the long-term survival. So that's number one. Number two, try to think about an upper molar. And sometimes these upper molars have roots either touching the floor of the sinus or sometimes even poking into the sinus. And you know, the moment you take that tooth out, the sinus floor will just collapse all the way down. And the way I describe it to my patients, i tell them, think about posterior teeth like a pole supporting a tent. You remove the pole, the tent drops down. And the same thing happens the moment you take your posterior tooth, especially if it's touching the sinus or poking into the sinus, you're going to get what we call sinus pneumatization, expansion of that air cavity, which will complicate the implant case later on because that patient might need to go through sinus elevation or sinus grafting. Now, if we decide to take that tooth out and maybe go for ridge preservation in the same visit, take a tooth out and pack some processed bone into the socket with some soft tissue graft on the top, that will minimize boundary modeling in that area and preserve the outer, space, outer shape of the ridge and keep that sinus floor high up. So then that case will be a straightforward case 12, 16 weeks afterwards. Why I'm saying that? Because you know how we said there are people who do implants, but to do sinus graft, you need to even have more advanced training and you need to even pay more for your indemnity. So not every implant dentist can deal with sinus grafting because of either they don't have the training or they don't want to pay this full-time indemnity, okay? So we're talking about the difference between like 3,000 pounds versus 12,000 pounds for indemnity, for example, if you touch the science, So by doing this, you avoid putting your patient through sinus crafting. And another important reason, some patients, especially in England, You're going to, or Glasgow or Scotland or UK in general, you're going to have people with really inflamed sinuses, thick lining or infected sinuses. And it would be nice to not do any surgery close to the sinus. So, by doing this, bridge preservation can help. So, in general, my advice to you, whether it's anterior or posterior, the moment you and your patient reach a decision that this tooth is unrepairable and beyond repair, refer to the implant dentist while the tooth is still there. It will make a huge difference. Now, what protocol your implant dentist is going to go for, then there will be a very detailed assessment, and then we can decide to go for immediate or early or delayed. Anything within the first 24 hours called immediate, anything up to eight weeks according to Cochrane classification called early, And anything after that, we call it delayed. Now, this is Cochrane collaboration classification. The ITI has a different classification. It's to do with the healing process. Fresh extraction socket type 1, soft tissue healing but no bone healing, and that's type 2, soft tissue healing with partial bone healing, type 3, soft tissue healing and full bone healing, type 4. So the difference between the ITI classification and Cochrane classification, Cochrane is more time scale, while ITI is more like biology and um, sort of healing process. Because type two for a molar, let's say after eight weeks, type molar will be type two, but a central incisor will be type three, for example. So you know what tooth you're dealing with. Each of them has its pros and cons. You know, I know some people like immediate because it saves the patient having too many surgeries and you know get the work workflow quicker but then immediate have some risks if, especially if they're done in the wrong patient you need to have a scan to check the bone volume to make sure there is no latent or sleeping bacteria if you like or infection in that area you want to make sure that the patient has thick gum thick biotype, because if you have a thin biotype, you might get a recession. You want to th- check that labia plate, is it intact or not? So there are certain criteria a person need to know whether this patient is suitable for immediate or not. Cochrane Collaboration, through their systematic reviews, found that the safest is to go for early, because with early, where you, if you have any remaining infection that would be gone, most of the remodeling would take place. So when you open the surgical site, you know what you're dealing with. And you haven't left it too long, like delayed, so you don't get too much bone shrinkage. But yeah, I think it's all about communication. And I'm sure every implant dentist would love to talk to you as a referring dentist about what's you know, the best way forward. I I think um, everyone
1: has their own clinical preferences. So definitely, uh, what you mentioned there, have an open conversation to decide. Yes, you said that generally it's nice for the implant dentist to to see the tooth, and it it makes so much sense to me. You know, to actually all those reasons that you mentioned for them to have that opportunity, because you know you don't always get that opportunity. So when you have that opportunity, when you know a tooth needs to come out to have that chat, to have the scan, potentially stents or whatever, that can all happen with the implant dentist and that's a really good idea. But to have that open conversation, so even just to uh, send an email or some photos or some x-rays to your um, implant-placing dentist if you're not placing them yourself, uh, can, can, can carry a lot of weight, I think. Um, the next, next question I had is, do you all, would you always section and elevate upper molars? Is that like a routine uh,
0: thing for you to, to do? That's a very good question because you know, preserving the bone can make a huge difference. And the way we teach and the way I was taught that rather than taking an upper molar, try to section it into three small anterior teeth. So imagine this big molar with three roots, section it into three small roots, and then they'd come out easily. So that case will be converted into an easier case. And the the chance of you damaging the bone will be much less Definitely, that's the way forward. But the question is, what do we do after having that tooth removed? Are we gonna leave it? Or are we gonna do immediate placement? Or are we gonna do ridge preservation? And that's where, this is another invitation for general dental dental practitioners to know more about ridge preservation, even if they don't want to do implants. Imagine you're taking that upper premolar. Let's say you're taking upper second premolar out, and the treatment plan is to go for a bridge. Just a conventional bridge from the first premolar to the first molar, right? So you remove the five out, and then you do nothing. What's going to happen to the ridge? It's going to collapse all the way, right? Bacolangually. So you come to restore it. You have two options. Either your lab technician gives you a nice-looking tooth with, um, like, a ridge lap, so you don't see that collapse. But then that rich lab is going to trap food. So it's not going to be hygienic restoration. Or you go to your dentist, to your lab technician, and say, no, don't give me a rich lab. Give me a nice ovate pontic. So it doesn't trap food, but it's going to look ugly. Well, if you've done rich preservation, it's going to preserve the rich for you. And then you can have a nice looking, but also hygienic restoration. And hence, This is an invitation for every single dentist to look into rich preservation techniques, even if you don't want to do implants. And it's simple, you take the tooth out, you clean the socket really well, you debride the socket really well, either with an excavator, or if I can say there are very good degranulation bears you could buy, and then they clean the socket really well for you. They remove granulation tissue, but they don't remove bone on your um, uh, slow hand piece. And then you decide what bone material you're going to use according to whether you're going to leave it and not put implants at all. So you could use xenograft, cow bone, for example, or you could, if you want to come back and put an implant, then we can use allograft or alloplast. And then you get a little piece of the gum, which you can take it from the retromolar area, cut like a circle and stitch it on the top. Obviously, that's a very simplified way of it, but what I'm trying to say, it's not complicated. You don't need to be someone really experienced in oral surgery to be able to do ridge preservation. And I strongly believe every general dental practitioner should know how to do ridge preservation, even for conventional dentistry. Hassan, I love the point that you made about actually,
1: forget implants, even for a bridge. To do that uh, socket uh, preservation. It really brings a, po- a point home really nicely. So I really appreciate you making that point in that way that you did it. That's really clever. Um, and I think it's a, it's a really good skill. I, I completely agree with you. I've been in a few courses with the pigs heads. It's not rocket science, I have to say, a, a silly GDP like myself, I think it's very possible to, for us to do. And I think it makes a, gr- a great difference. So the last question I have, as a GDP, uh, who wants to learn more about implant dentistry, about the clinical side from you, just a flavor is, just on the very um, theme of let's say you remove a premolar and then you get that buccolingual uh, sort of um, resorption, natural healing process if you like, is there evidence that early or immediate placement of implants will preserve bone or is that false
0: thinking? Okay, um, there, was, the, there was an old school of thoughts thinking that immediate placement will preserve bone and that's false thinking. There are very good studies uh, on animals, random control trials done where they took a tooth out and then put an immediate implant and they found um, no change in the bone loss. Let me just throw some numbers here. Your buccal lingual bone shrinkage will depend on the biotype of that case. If you have thin biotype, which means thin gum, thin label plate underneath, you're going to get 50% buccolingual bonus. So that ridge of 8 millimeter can go to 4 millimeter within the first 24 weeks, which is huge damage. Nice. If you have thick biotype, you get up to 20% will shrinkage within the first 24 weeks. So that's sort of evidence-based fact. Now people thought, okay, let's put an implant there and stimulate the ridge and see what happens they found the same level of bone shrinkage. Other studies said, okay, what about if we put an implant and do immediate loading to stimulate the bone even better? They found no difference. You will still get the same level of bone shrinkage. And the risk here, if you put a wide implant, as people used to do in the past, to get good stability in that socket, as the bone shrinks, these threads will start to get exposed and you start to get a dirty implant infected area. Therefore, nowadays, even if people want to go for immediate placement, we know that we go for a narrower implant and allow for a labial gap, and that labial gap will be filled with bone. So if we get that buccal bone shrinkage, the process bone will stop the gum collapsing further down. And we get our primary stability whenever we do immediate placement from the epical one-third rather than the coronal one-third. So we always go for longer implants, getting bone stability from the bone beyond the socket. So to summarize, no, immediate placement will not minimize or stop bone loss. Putting diamond in the socket will not stop bone loss. So bone loss will take place just because you and I and everyone else listening are humans made of biology.
1: Should you be doing socket preservation for every single extraction then?
0: Okay, Um, personally, if I want to use the correct term, I like to use ridge preservation because we cannot preserve the socket, okay? Okay. So that's number one. Number two, depends what you're gonna do afterwards. If I'm doing a conventional bridge, I will do ridge preservation. If I'm doing, um, if I'm placing an implant after a year, I will do rich preservation. But if I'm placing an implant after eight weeks, no. I mean, eight weeks is good enough for blood clot to form nicely. I will come back, place my implant and do my guided bone regeneration at the time of the my implant placement. Amazing.
1: Well, uh, that's a, a, a lovely sort of overview on some of the clinical aspects, you know, smoking, uh, you quite, quite correctly said ridge preservation, uh, and, and a few uh, patient related factors such as bisphosphonates, which are such common things that we see in practice day in day out. Um, Hassan, any closing comments on clinical implantology for the GDP, or the, the ones who are sort of starting out in their implant career?
0: Okay, I I like what uh, one of my friends told me the other day. You are the average of your best two friends or the two best friends you have. So, my advice to you always try to link yourself with successful people because, you know, try to always be part of a group. And by doing this, you're going to have. Um, motivation to take you forward. You're going to have this push from your colleagues to become a better dentist. You need to be closing your eyes, not while you're driving, but later on, closing your eyes Mm -hmm. and try to think, where do you see yourself five years down the line? Have a target and work towards that target. And if you see yourself five years down the line doing implants dentistry, pick up the phone, And start asking friends, look for a good course, and don't allow anyone to put you down getting into this beautiful field of dentistry. It's one of the most rewarding aspects of general dentistry is to try to build something out of nothing, uh, restore people's confidence. I know veneers are great. I know straightening the teeth is amazing. But you know what? I think there is nothing as good as converting someone from a conventional denture to a fixed bridge and giving them their life back so you know guys the market in the united kingdom needs more implant dentists just to give you an idea uk has the least number of implant dentists compared to europe when it comes to comparison number of implant dentists per population and there is a huge potential there for you go for it if you think you can do it, but if you want to do it, remember it's a marathon. It's a continual education, just like any other aspect in dentistry. Thank you very much,
1: Hassan. Thanks so much. And uh, any details of, of Hassan's uh, course? Is it part of the B A I R D? Is it, is that the umbrella yes. for
0: your course? I, I am I am the scientific advisor and the head of the. Uh, Scientific Committee of the British Academy Implant Restorative Dentistry, which is BAIRD. And please, uh, if you have time, you could look at our Facebook page or our website, which is baird.uk.com. And uh, we do run short courses, long courses, and we do collaborate with different universities in the UK and in Europe as well. And you know what? Pick up the phone, come and speak to us even if you just want to have a chat about how to pursue a career in implant dentistry or whether you want to double check it's the right thing for you or not.
1: That's amazing, Hassan. I just want to say as well that um, I think the next step for for, for anyone listening or watching this and you you haven't started on the implant journey is, would you agree, Hassan, maybe the next step is pick up the phone and maybe find the person in your area who's placing implants at the moment and Hopefully, the pandemic is going to be, by the time we come around to doing this, uh, on the downward slope. And hopefully, you can start shadowing some implant dentists. Wouldn't that be great? Golden advice, Jazz. Golden advice. I got it from you, my friend. Uh, Hazza, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your sort of a journey um, ideas about getting started. And also a few clinical things that a lot of dentists tend to ask, uh, uh, misconception dentistry about, you know, ridge preservation stuff. So really appreciate all that. Uh, and, I, and I wish you all the best. And it's been great connecting with you. Thank you so
0: much. Thank you, Jaz. And good luck with your beautiful podcasts. They're very useful and well done. Keep up the great work, mate. Thank you. Thank you so much.
1: So there we have it. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. Listen, if you found value from this episode, if you liked the the implant sort of themes that we covered and you liked the content I'm generating, please do me a favor and share it with a friend who you think will benefit if you want CPD out of it. Currently, it's on dental or tubules. So if you're a tubules member, check it out. You can get your CPD by answering a few simple questions. If you're not a tubules member, then that's just another added value you can get from tubules. So check them out Uh, and again, I really appreciate your listenership always. Please do hit that subscribe button and I'll catch you in that next episode. Thank you.